a little bit different of a day, um, not just because it's Father's Day, um, and it's been, as Pastor Marcus said earlier, it's been a joy of my life to be a, a father. Um, don't believe the horror stories, young people, having kids does not end or ruin your life. Um, it is a, a joy that I wish I had honestly embraced sooner in life, and so um, to the fathers in the room, um, whether you feel like you have been killing it this week or struggling this week, um, hopefully that you feel loved and celebrated, if not today, hopefully the rest of the day um, as well. Um, but today is also an interesting Sunday. Usually we will be turning to Mark chapter 6, continuing our series, Jesus More Than We Expect, talking about how Jesus uh, surprises us and convicts us and challenges us in the most surprising of ways. Um, and we're going to talk about that theme, but from a different passage. And so I believe for the second time ever, um, since we've started our church a few years ago, we are going to not do that. We're going to talk about something else um, from the word of God, from the power of God, uh, but something that's a little more local and close to home. As you may or may not know that tomorrow is June 17th. It will be the fourth anniversary of the murders that happened at Emmanuel AME downtown Charleston. And this was a white supremacist terrorist walked into a Bible study, sat through the entire Bible study, and then when they bowed their heads to pray, he murdered nine people. There were three survivors that night, um, two adults and one child who lived through that evening, um, and they will be telling their stories yet again for another year, um, reliving and re-experiencing in some ways the pain of that night, and then the survivors and their families of the victims will be telling their stories as well. Turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 13. Ezekiel chapter 13. Um, there is going to be no verses on the screen, so if you don't have your Bible, please pull them out. If you need a Bible, just simply lift your hand, and one of our ushers will put a Bible in your hand. Um, if you don't own a Bible, that Bible is yours to keep. That is our gift to you. Um, so if you need a Bible this morning, just simply lift your hand, and we'll put one in your hand. Ezekiel 13, I'm going to begin in verse 8, and I'm going to read all the way through verse 16. Um, read along silently as I read aloud. Therefore, this is what the Lord God says. You have spoken falsely and had lying visions. That's why you discover that I am against you. This is the declaration of the Lord God. My hand will be against the prophets who see false visions and speak lying divinations. They will not be present in the council of my people or be recorded in the register of those of the house of Israel. And they will not enter the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord God. Since you have led my people astray by saying peace when there is no peace. And since when a flimsy wall is being built... They plaster it with whitewash. Therefore, tell those plastering it with whitewash that it will fall. Torrential rain will come, and I will send hailstones plunging down, and a whirlwind will be released. When the wall was fallen, when the wall has fallen, will you not be asked, where's the whitewash you plastered on it? So this is what the Lord God says, I will release a whirlwind in my wrath. Torrential rain will come in my anger, and hailstones will fall in destructive fury. I will demolish the wall you plastered with whitewash and knock it to the ground so that its foundation 
is exposed. The city will fall and you will be destroyed within it. Then you will know that I am the Lord. After I exhaust my wrath against the wall and against those who plaster it with whitewash, I will say to you, the wall is no more and neither are those who plastered it. Those prophets of Israel who prophesied to Jerusalem and saw a vision of peace for her when there was no peace. This is the declaration of the Lord God. Interesting text for some. Um, Ezekiel is a prophet during the time of the house of Israel had been conquered and then they had been scattered around in various nations. And there were prophets who arose at the time to speak words of comfort and hope. But there were also prophets who rose up to speak words of judgment. And so the people were wrestling with which one is true. There was one camp of prophets that says, hey, we've been exiled for a season, but I promise you that God is going to turn the corner any day now. Don't build homes. Don't care about the city. Don't plan to be here for long, for God is going to rescue you. And although that sounds comforting and that rescue would eventually come, that's not what the Lord was saying in these days. And so God, through the prophet Ezekiel, is condemning those prophets who are saying that this season of suffering is incidental. The season of suffering is momentary. It's inconsequential. Carry on as usual. And Ezekiel says, you are whitewashing faulty walls. You are covering over hard truths with pleasant sounding lies. And for that, I will judge you. Last night, I had the honor and the privilege of attending the premiere of the movie, Emmanuel. Um, and this isn't going to be a sermon about the movie, if that's what you're wondering. But it was something that shifted the course of even Sunday morning for me. Um, I had seen the movie before. We had a private screening here, even at the church. Um, and so I thought it would be a going to see it again um, with friends and others and would lead to good conversations and great dialogue. What I did not expect is the impact that it would have to watch that movie with over 400 members of the family of those who were murdered that night. Almost the entire bottom half of the Gilliard Auditorium was filled with those who traveled from around the country, most of them to see this movie for the very first time about how their family members were gunned down with their eyes closed as they heads bowed for prayer. And what I didn't count on happening that night, which I probably should have, was just the pain of seeing the story of your dead family members being told to strangers. And as the wails of mothers and grandmothers rang out, even in the theater, as people tried to walk out and could not, and they collapsed in the aisles, um, as the sniffles and tears of everyone in the audience that day wrestled with what had happened, I began to search for words. Now, my wife will tell you I'm not one who's often lost for words. I always have something to say, whether it's helpful or true or right or not. I always have something to say. Um, and I, as I study the text for this morning, Mark chapter 6, where we're supposed to be in, I begin to grapple, gra wrestle and grapple with I didn't have anything to say. Not just because the word of God is insufficient in any way. It's more about my insufficiency. But it was interesting Dylan Roof walked into this Bible study on Wednesday nights, um, sat through the service, 
And what had stuck out to me even more profoundly, even though I, I felt like my brain knew it, my heart interacted with this information a little differently, is the Bible study that that night that Dylan Roof was, that he sat through, was on the book of Mark. The passage that we had preached on just a few weeks ago, even. And he heard that passage, a passage that Pastor Jake beautifully and exquisitely preached on through the power of God. Dylan Roof sat through that message, hearing those same words, hearing, reading those same passages, feeling the love of being welcomed as a stranger and a visitor and as a guest, and he still decided to murder nine people. Now, the temptation here is to talk about the brokenness of this world and the fallenness of this world, but I don't think that's the task for us this morning. The temptation is to see Dylan Roof and his crimes as an aberration, as an anomaly, as something foreign to us. But our theology won't allow us to do that, will it? There's a, a phrase called total depravity. Some of you may know this as the, the points of Calvinism or Reformed theology or whatever, but this doctrine was really wrestled with when it to counter the notion that people are, are good by nature. And certain things turn them bad. That people are mostly good on the inside and, and a hard life or a hard circumstance can turn them bad. And Christianity is just one of many ways to restore people back to their original righteous self. That is not the theology of the Bible, I believe. That's not the, the gospel that we preach here. We preach a gospel that says that we are so bad that we are so broken, that we are beyond repair. And if Jesus doesn't do something supernatural, not just making us better, but making us new, what Dylan Roof did is small in comparison to what any one of us is capable of doing. And that's a hard truth. Ezekiel 13, 10, since they have led my people astray by saying peace when there is no peace, and since when a flimsy wall is being built, they plaster it with whitewash. You see, the, the judgment on these prophets was they weren't telling the truth. Because the truth was hard to hear. The truth might meant that I would suffer as other prophets did. The truth might meant I was exiled as other prophets were. And so they told pleasant-sounding lies to the people of Israel. And God's judgment fell upon them specifically. And so this morning, my, I endeavor to tell the truth. And I hope that it leads us to telling the truth, even to ourselves this morning. There's a man by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer who wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. And I'll read a familiar quote from that book to some. It says, cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Diedrich Bonhoeffer would say cheap grace isn't grace at all. It's whitewashing of our sins. It's saying peace when there is no peace. Before the premiere, I had the opportunity to sit in a room with some of the family members um, 
And they were sharing their stories in front of some press. And one of the questions that stuck out to me that the family members answered, um, they asked, the reporter asked them, what part of the story is not being told? I mean, the headlines for weeks and weeks after the shootings four years ago were plastered everywhere. The faces of nine people taking the story of forgiveness that shortly followed thereafter. The Charleston Nine murals being painted around the city. Charleston Strong t-shirts being sold throughout the city. People holding hands across a bridge. People forming the circle of a heart in the park. People doing these symbolic acts, a Confederate flag coming down. It seems to be a powerful story. And one of the family members, and I say one intentionally, because another thing they said that day is one of us doesn't speak for all of us. We're all human beings at different points of this. We all should be seen as individuals, not as a collective. And so one of the family members said that day that the part of the story that's not being told is that it's not a story about forgiveness. It's a story about nine people being murdered in a church. And it's a story about some people responding in forgiveness and some others struggling with hatred and bitterness, and anger, and sadness, and all the things that kind of accompany that. And that was a helpful reminder that, and I think we intuitively know that even our stories are complex. There are moments of joy and sorrow. There are some of us who have lost people years ago, and we won't even think about it, and a smell, a song, a word will send us into a tailspin. Even in our Christian lives, there are days where we get up and we pray and we read and we feel the joy of the Lord being our strength. And there are other days where for no reason whatsoever, we feel a deep and profound sadness. And nothing has changed. And so the complexity of the human condition mixed with total depravity, mixed with the sin that we spill out onto one another means that all of our stories are more complex than we're comfortable with. Even our moments of joy are mixed with sadness, and even our, mix, our sadness is mixed with joy. Clinical psychologists would call it trauma laughter. You just laugh at things that aren't funny because you don't know what else to do. And so they implored the news media to tell the truth, to tell the whole story. And so the question is, is there peace, or are we proclaiming a peace that has not yet come? Is there peace, or are we proclaiming a peace that has not yet come to this city? And my answer is yes. Yes, there is peace, and no, peace has not come. Turn to Isaiah chapter 57. Yes, there is peace, and no, peace has not come. Isaiah 57. We're going to start looking at verses 14 and read all the way through verse 19. Read silently as I read aloud. This is the prophet Isaiah speaking. And most of Isaiah's prophecies are prophecies of comfort and a future deliverance of a promised Messiah. So contrast the, the prophecy that Ezekiel just gave us of judgment, of proclaiming peace when there is no peace, compared to what the prophet Isaiah, led by the same Holy Spirit, would say later. He said, the Lord speaking through Isaiah, build it up, build it up, prepare the way, 
Remove every obstacle from my people's way for the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, says this. I live in a high and holy place and with the oppressed and lowly of spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and revive the heart of the oppressed. For I will not accuse you forever. And God says, I will not always be angry. For then the spirit would grow weak before me, even the breath which I have made. Because of this sinful greed, I was angry, so I struck him, the nation of Israel. I was angry and hid, but he went on turning back to the desires of his, our heart. I have seen his, our ways, but I will heal him, us. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating words of praise. Listen to what the Lord says. Peace, peace to the one who is far or near, and I will heal him. I begin to wrestle with this sense of peace and yet discontentment. And so God would judge the false prophets of Israel for declaring peace before God's time, but here we have a messianic prophecy that I, the Lord, will declare peace. And when I say it, it's true. And when I say it, it's eternal. And when I say it, it can be trusted. So in one sense, dear believer, dear Christian, we have peace with God. And if we have peace with God, we have peace with one another because the Lord God says so. But that's not the end of the story. Remember, our stories are much more complex than we would like it to be. So God throws a wrinkle in it when we get to Matthew chapter 5. Some of you know this as the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are thee, fill in the blank. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart. For they will see God. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. Today I want to talk about becoming and being a peacemaker. We have a peace, and yet God calls us to make peace. We have a peace eternally and securely in Christ Jesus, and yet he tells us to be peacemakers. The story is more complex than we're comfortable with. And as I wrestled with this sense of making peace, there are some who say, man, we, there's no black, there's no white. We're all just a human race. Why can't we just move on? There are some who say, man, just preach about Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection. Call it the gospel and never deviate from those statements. There are some who are so disenchanted, so disillusioned, that even talking about issues of race or justice brings a sense of weariness to them because of how much people have used and abused those words for selfish, ungodly purposes. And so I want to have a hard conversation. I want to have a pastoral conversation today because I, as I wrestled with, well, to put it more accurately, as the Lord wrestled with me, 
about whitewashed walls, walls that are flimsy and need to be torn down and rebuilt, and yet we choose to paint over them. As I wrestled with that, my immediate and instinctive reaction was to point the finger out there. People saying that we are doing far better than we are. People who are saying that there is justice when there is not. Policemen going without even being charged with a crime in the most questionable of circumstances. The riots that follow thereafter, the silence that follows thereafter. And there's a temptation to point the finger at all those things, and that would be true. I feel my burden this morning is for us to talk about ourselves this morning in light of this truth. How am I guilty of whitewashing walls? How am I guilty of saying peace, peace, when there is no peace? We were having a conversation even this morning about the security of today. Um, Dylan Roof spent time researching his targets, and he wanted to, to target a church that would hurt the black community. So he did his research. He didn't just stumble into Emmanuel AME Church. He did his research. And he found that he got a bonus and the pastor was a, an elected representative. And so two for one. And even this morning as we met with ushers and worship teams, because every year someone gets an idea to do the same thing. Pastors and friends of mine, we've been texting throughout the week, even the month, saying, hey, man, what are you doing to protect your people this Sunday? What are you doing to protect your people this Sunday? And as I realized, if I was a man like Dylan Roof, who hated race mixing, who hated blacks having a place, Radiant Church looks like a great target on a Sunday morning before the anniversary doesn't matter. And even having to wrestle with security for this morning, I begin to ask, Lord, have we been saying peace, peace, when there is no peace? You see, some of us, myself included, we use Radiant Church as an excuse to not deal with the hard issues of life. Not all of us. I had a good friend of mine when I was in uh, college. Um, he was raised Catholic and had begun to have questions about the gospel. His, the Catholic church that he was a part of really just um, was, was form and function over relationship with Jesus. And so as long as you did the things, you were okay with God. And so for the first time, he began to wrestle with what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. And as we begin to talk about how Christ is our high priest, how we need no mediator between God and man, and how the, the sacrifices have already been done on our behalf. There's no more works that we need to do to be saved. He wrestled with this. He couldn't understand this. And so he, he felt safe in his Catholic religion. He felt safe that he had a relationship with God because the, the room that he was sitting in was filled with people who had a relationship with God. He felt safe in his relationship with God because he heard the words of God week in and week out. He did the sacrifices required. He did the, the motions required, and he felt safe because he was doing something that absolved him of personal guilt. And so maybe even at Radiant Church, we have gotten comfortable and we haven't asked the hard questions of ourselves or of one another because you go to the diverse church in North Charleston with the black pastor and the white pastor and singing diverse songs and have a diverse people on Sunday. And so maybe we have assuaged the guilt 
and avoided the conversations that we should have because we seem to be doing all the right things. Did you know that we count not just the number of people every Sunday, but we count the number of ethnicities represented every single Sunday? We've done that for two years. Did you know that? Why? Because we want to be intentional. If we see one Sunday more of one demographic showing up than another, we begin to ask ourselves the question, what are we doing wrong? Is there something we're communicating that's making people feel less welcome than they would be otherwise? And so from an organizational level, by God's grace, I think we've done a, a good job. On most Sundays, we are almost exactly 50% white, 50% non-white. Did you know that? On most Sundays, we are 50-50. If it gets 60-40, we're starting to have conversations. If it gets 70-30, we're, we're changing stuff. That's the reality. So from an organizational level, if you were just to, to walk in and see the people, you say, man, you guys are doing it. But are we? How many people who've been attending this church for a season, you don't have to raise your hand, just think about the question. How many people in this room know who another person in this room voted for in the 2016 election? If you're not a pastor. How many of you know? How many of you have talked about it? How many of us who believe that homeschooling is the way that we love our kids the most, and how many of us believe that sending our children to public schools is the way that we engage our children in the mission the most, or how many of you believe that our sending our kids to private schools engages our children and loves our children the most? How many people have talked to someone who sees that differently? You see... We, like my Catholic friend, I think have been lulled to a sense of peace, lulled to a sense of unity that we may not actually have. A good friend of mine, Brian Loritz, uh, well, I say friend, but um, a man that I've had the opportunity to work alongside with, literally wrote the book on racial reconciliation. Literally wrote the book. He planted a church along with some other folks in Memphis, Tennessee, with this in its DNA. Racial reconciliation is in the DNA of the church. It's in the membership classes. It's reflected on stage. This guy is a guy that I learned about to understand these issues. And he planted a church in one of the most diverse parts of Memphis. And did you know what happened to his church during the 2016 election? It crumbled under the weight of disappointment. One of the pastors told me that there were small groups that had been meeting for years, seven, eight, nine years. That 2016, November, was the last time they ever gathered together. Because it was a, a unity for sure, but it was just a profound disappointment because I didn't know. You voted for this person, how could you? And that began to, he began to wrestle with and saying, like, have we, did we really do a good job of building community and relationship? Did we really do the hard work of uncovering each other, not so that we can expose to condemn or judge, so that we can build into each other a real meaningful relationship, not based on agreement, but based on the cross? Did we do that? If all it took was a presidential election to hurt the church. And as I saw the premiere, these questions were asked afresh in my own heart. 
Like, Lord, have we been saying peace? I get asked to speak almost weekly because of the work that Radiant Church has done in this city. And people marvel at what we've been able to build, or more accurately, what you all have been able to build. And I go around sharing what we know, sharing what we've done. And in some ways, we are seen as some as a model of what could be. Is that true, though? Is that true? Do you really know the person that you're sitting next to? Or better yet, do you really know the person that you're not sitting next to? For real. Not just, hey, man, we go to the same church. Let's assume that we believe the same things. But do we really know them? Do we really love them, even though they may disagree? When I first planted Radiant Church, you know, people would often ask me, like, what's your, what's your vision? This is before God's family on mission. This is before kind of the language kind of settled on this family theme of one another. Um, and people ask, they say, what, what do you want to do? What do you want to see happen? And my heart's desire then as now is to see the whole Bible applied to the whole life. Did you know that the word Lord is used 740 times in the New Testament? 667 of those times is used talking about Jesus or God specifically. Lord Jesus. Lord God. Take a guess in your mind how many times the word uses Savior in the New Testament. Lower than that. 24 times. Only 24 times in the New Testament is Jesus called Savior. 667 times he's called Lord. Now, what does that say? What are the New Testament writers, the Holy Spirit, trying to tell us? I'm not saying that God, Jesus, is not a Savior. Apart from him, there is no hope. There is no salvation. There's nothing that we can do to merit a right relationship with Jesus Christ. We are here today because God is Savior. Amen. But when we go out from this place, do people tell that Jesus is our Lord? Have we ordered our lives in such a non-native way that people can tell that there is something different and unique about those Christians? There is something different and unique about that person ever since they started going there, ever since they started reading the Bible, they started to act different. Has that been said about you ever? Has that been said about me? Would I be passionate about the things that I'm passionate about now if I wasn't a believer? Would I do the same things that I'm doing now if I wasn't a believer? What part of the lordship of Jesus Christ has wrecked my life? Let me ask a more pointed question. Where do you disagree with Jesus? If you can't think of anyone, you may be worshiping an idol. Or you may be perfect. Those are the only two options. Either your affections are so aligned with Jesus Christ that you agree with everything. Or you've whitewashed the walls of Jesus, even of himself. In that same meeting with the press interview, one of the family members spoke out. Um, He said that when they go to speak at places to tell the story. Now imagine this. Your mother, your father, your grandfather, your granduncle, your auntie was murdered in a church. 
and you feel a burden and a desire to tell the story so that the church may be edified as a result. So you voluntarily go out to tell the story of how, what God is doing in your life. And he says that at times when they're reading his bio, they'll take out parts that he wrote about his mom. In his bio, it says that his loved one was slain, was murdered in the church by a white supremacist. Doesn't sound that warm and fuzzy before we do this convention, so they would literally take it out of his bio before he gets to speak. And he talks about the anger that that causes because they're not telling the whole story. He talks about the anger of when people say, I'm so sorry your mom passed away. And he says, my mom didn't pass away. But we do this, don't we? We, we, we sand off the rough edges of truth to make it a little bit more palatable. We don't want to talk about those things. We don't want to say the word murder. We don't want to say white supremacy. We don't want to say racism is still killing the church in Charleston. We don't want to say those things. And so we put our heads down. We continue week in and week out to do the same thing. So what does peace look like? If we're called to be peacemakers, what does it look like? Matthew chapter 10. You can turn there or listen as I read aloud. Jesus speaking. Verses 32 through 36. It says, therefore, everyone who will acknowledge me before others, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. Whoever denies me before others, I will also deny him before my Father in heaven. Listen carefully, brothers and sisters. Don't assume that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. What is Jesus talking about? He just said, blessed are the peacemakers. The Isaiah prophesied that the Messiah would come and bring true peace. Peace. What is Jesus saying that I did not come to bring peace but a sword? What Jesus is doing is he's using two extremes to make a point, kind of a, an inverse hyperbole, if you want something fancy to call it. He's saying peace will sometimes feel like war. That unity will sometimes feel like division. That if you want peace, sometimes you have to fight. If you want unity, sometimes you've got to be divided around the right things. Do you know the cause of unity in the church was one of the reasons that my denomination, the Southern Baptist Convention, was silent on racism in the the South? The number one reason is because they didn't want to bring division in the church. And this is a divisive topic, so let's not talk about it. You see, they elevated unity above the place that God had put unity in. Unity isn't getting along. Unity is being united around Jesus. So we can fight, and as long as we both got Jesus, we are united. We can disagree, and as long as we got Jesus, we will be united. Unity isn't saying, let's agree to not agree. Let's agree to disagree. Let's agree to just never talk about it. That's not what unity is, married people. Might as well slip it in. We're here. (laughs) The reality is, y'all, God is calling us to a unity that's going to feel like we're fighting. 
God is calling us to create a peace that's going to come at the shed blood. Not just of Jesus, but of martyr after martyr, missionary after missionary, Bible study attendee after Bible study attendee. You see Luke 9, 23, when Jesus says, come, follow me, some people see that as a metaphor for following Jesus every day. And that's true. That's not all that it's saying. He's saying, I'm going to this, this, this place to die. You on the sidelines, come die with me. You on the sidelines, come die with me. But like the thief on the cross, if you die with me, you will be raised with me. Anyone who denies me, I will deny in heaven. Anyone who acknowledges me before others, I will acknowledge him. What is Jesus saying? He's saying it's worth it. He's saying it's worth it because you get me in the end. And for some of us in this room, the words of Jesus says, I came to turn a man against his father, a daughter against his mother, a daughter-in-law against his mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. For some of us in this room, that is not a metaphor. That is our reality. To follow Christ has built some divisions in your family, has it not? Husbands and wives, fathers and children. When you tell your child, no, you can't play that extra sport because you are not the center of the universe, Jesus is. So we're not missing the gathering of God's people on Sunday so you can play. When you take your children off the throne of the life, that's going to bring some conflict because all my friends are doing it. And even if they never turn around, you have an eternal reward, God is saying. Following Jesus is going to cost you something. Unity is going to look like division. Peace is going to feel like war. Why? Because of total depravity. Because we are far more broken than we can ever realize. And it's going to take far more work of the Holy Spirit and the work of your and my hands to achieve the peace that God is promising. So to be peacemakers will sometimes make us lawless people. How many times as we walk through the book of Acts was Paul arrested for breaking the law? We see Jesus' crucifixion as an injustice, but no, it was the religious authority aligned with the legal authority to kill Jesus. There was nothing illegal about Jesus being nailed to a tree. To follow him, we need to follow a higher call, a higher law. I'm not advocating lawlessness. I'm advocating obedience. And whatever it costs you, it's worth it because you get Jesus in the end. Jesus has to be Lord, y'all. He's got to be Lord over this issue of race and racism in our church. Even today, the church tries to silence voices talking about race. You know what the families talk about when they go talk about what happened? They don't talk about forgiveness. They talk about gun control. They talk about racism. If you ask any one of the nine surviving members to come and speak at your church, they're not going to tell the story of forgiveness only. They will, because for some of them, that's what God has done in their life. But if you hear them for who they are and not just as characters that fit in a headline, they'll talk about other things. Things that in church we've been trained to never talk about, to never address. But that's what you're all facing, isn't it? That's what you're all facing. We have students from Charleston Southern University in this place. 
You attend a college that has its own story, do you not? And you need hope eternally, but you also need hope now. As you walk down in the calf and get the looks, as you see the flyers posted around the dorms, you need help navigating that today. There's some of us who are family members, we can't even go to Thanksgiving anymore because we've taken a stand for righteousness and our uncle is still our uncle. And our grandpa is still our grandfather. And he's saying things that not just offend you, that's not the point, but offend our God. Because he's talking about people who were made in his image and you won't stand for it anymore, will you? And so now you're not in the group text anymore. You're not invited to stick around for the holidays. And that's a small thing, but it's a big thing, isn't it? To feel like you're alone even in your own family. When we say we're God's family on mission, that's not a cliche or a euphemism for some of us. It is the replacement that following Jesus has cost us. So for you, following Jesus meant you had to turn your back on your natural family in some ways. You had to challenge even the older saints in your family, and now you feel like you're by yourself. Radiant Church has become that home for you, and it should be, because we are sons and daughters of God. Peace, peace, when there is no peace. We're going to end our time with communion today in just a few moments. But I want to say this. I am committed, and I need you to be freshly committed, especially those who attend regularly or especially those who are members of Radiant Church. I need you to can commit and to recommit to doing the hard work to make this picture a reality. It looks great, y'all. I wish you could see what I see even right now. It looks great. But is it real? Time and circumstances will tell, because guess what's coming? Another opportunity to show whether we're really committed to this whole gospel thing for real. We got another election coming up. There's been 150 mass shootings this year. There'll be another one this week. Eight people, and I believe the numbers are eight people and three children die every single day from gun violence. Some of us will see clips of it on the news. We'll see the, the color imbalance. And then we'll show up on church and sit next to somebody and we'll have to wrestle through that. But are we wrestling through it? That's my question. Are we wrestling through it? I'm, I've been asked to speak um, in the fall. Um, um, and it's, it's a weird thing I have to do. I'm just going to be honest. It's a weird thing that I have to do where I have to space out things. Um, the, the documentary that's out when they see us, phenomenal documentary. I promise you I will watch it, but I haven't watched it yet. Why? So I'm going to stand in front of campus outreach on Tuesday and have to lead a conversation. I wanted to be helpful and not just be angry. I'm speaking at the Gospel Coalition in the fall, and I want to be helpful, and I don't want to be angry. That stuff makes me angry. And some of us, we show up to church a little bit angry after things have happened. And as a church, we don't always mention it. If you don't come to our early morning prayer times, you may not hear anything about it. And for some of you, you may be wrestling because of our silence as a church. And you're wondering, is anybody going to comfort me? Does anybody care what happens to me? I want to tell you that not just God cares, but we do care. 
But most times when I walk up, I'm just at a loss for words. What do I say that's helpful? And not just helpful for me, but helpful for everyone here. So that I can do what God calls me to do as a pastor and a preacher of the word of God. And so oftentimes, because I'm at a loss for words, I don't say anything. And that's my fault. That's my fault. So I will recommit afresh to do the hard work, to not shy away from the hard topics, because if Jesus doesn't touch every part of our lives, we really haven't given any part of our lives to him, have we? If this gospel that we proclaim and preach and find our joy in, if it doesn't change every nook and cranny of even our biases and prejudices, what are we doing? We won't submit to him as Lord completely. He is not Lord at all. And as I said before, my desire to see the whole Bible applied to the whole life. What is that saying? I want to see people living surrendered lives. I will live differently because Jesus says so. Not because I agree, not because I like it, not because it's the easiest choice, but because Jesus says so. And these conversations about race and the images that we're flooded with in our timelines of murder and death and pain and anger, we, the church, have got to do something about that. You see, the world and organizations that are ungodly and anti-godly, they're the ones walking around screaming peace when there is no peace and war when there is no war. We are the only people who've got truth to say, yes, we have peace, but yes, we've got to fight for it. And the only way that's possible is through the power of the Holy Spirit. The only way that's possible is through the church. If we are silent, the world will die. If we are silent, this world will die. And I don't mean that metaphorically. I mean people are walking into churches and murdering people. That The sad part is I know we're going to go home today and somebody's church is going to be attacked this Sunday. And I know it's true because it's what's happened. Voices screaming and the voices that are silent are heard equally loudly. We need to be the voice of truth, saying peace when there really is peace, and yet fighting for it when it needs to be fought for. I'll end with this. 1 Corinthians 11, 27 through 32. Paul giving instructions about the taking of communion. He says, so then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup in the, of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lamb. Let a person examine himself. In this way, let him eat the bread and drink the cup. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body, without realizing what they're participating in, eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many are sick and ill among you, and many have fallen asleep. If we were properly judging ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned with the world. So as we prepare to take communion, let us take the word of God seriously and judge ourselves. Evaluate and examine our own hearts. Bible is clear that if we don't examine ourselves, the Lord will come and judge us. 
And we know that everything the Lord does is for our good, but it don't mean it's going to be pleasant. And I'd much rather us submit to God's word than be forced to bend the knee through trial and tribulation. Even as Christians, especially, and I would even say only as Christians, are we held to the standard of righteousness. As Christians, we bemoan how the world is becoming more worldly. That's what the world is supposed to be. It's us that are supposed to be righteous. It's us that are supposed to be salt and light. It's us that are supposed to be proclaiming hope, to bind the wounds of the brokenhearted. It's us. So let's spend a moment examining ourselves before we take communion. Let me pray.